Well, good evening, everyone. If you're here visiting or here for the first time, great to have you with us. My name's David, one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, we hope that your time with us is a blessed one, and we uh, hope that you, c- you could consider making CB Church your church home. I want to begin by showing you a brief video uh, with a man called Stephen Fry, who is an atheist, he's a social commentator uh, and uh, an actor. Uh, Take a look. Suppose it's all true Mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish, totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing there is a... not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question <laughs> that I ever got in this entire series. What did you think of that? The question of suffering is one of the hardest questions that we face as human beings. Every time a tsunami destroys lives or a pandemic wreaks havoc or there's a, a crash, in, you know, a train crash in India like last week which leaves a trail of human misery behind, every time that happens, we ask, why? Why, God, did you let that happen? Every time a child dies of cancer, we ask, why? Why couldn't you have created a world without suffering? And we ask these questions because we're trying to hold together what we know about God. If God is all-loving, then the only explanation for suffering seems to be that he's not all-powerful. He wants to do something about it, But he can't. 
And that is a frightening thought because it means that evil is stronger than God. On the other hand, if God is all-powerful, the only explanation seems to be that then God is not all-loving. He could do something about it, but he doesn't care. And that is a frightening thought. Who wants to trust in a God who is either bad or weak? But of course, the Bible is very clear that God is both all-loving and all-powerful. Well, so then, why didn't God create a world without suffering? Well, we just heard God's answer in our Bible reading this evening. And God's answer is very different from the one that we heard in the interview. And we also heard in our Bible reading that God uses our suffering to bring about our ultimate good. Now, how does that work and what is our ultimate good? Well, we're going to take a look together. Uh, this evening, there are, there are four points in the message. Uh, doesn't mean the message is any longer. It's just that that's the way that the, the passage fell into four parts. The first point is this. Creation groans for the glory to come. Have a look with me in verse 16. If you have your Bible in front of you, that would be great. Otherwise, it will be behind me. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So the beautiful truth that as a Christian you are a child of God is communicated to our minds through the scriptures, but more than that, it is communicated to our spirit. The spirit is the deepest dimension of our person. It is the aspect of the human person which relates most directly to God. It's the place where the human and the divine interface in a believer's life. And God's spirit provokes our spirit to cry, Abba, Father. The profoundest of deep longings. The law required two witnesses for an adoption to be made legal. And we have the Holy Spirit and the Spirit testifying that we are God's children. Have a look with me in verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Believers will share in God's glory and the glory of the Son for all eternity. God's glory is the visible manifestation of his greatness. Right? So God is invisible, he's spirit, we can't see him. But a number of times through the Old Testament, he manifested himself in physical form. And at those times, the people saw his glory. They saw his glory. God's glory is the visible manifestation of his presence. It is, it's the radiance of his splendor. It is the magnificence of his presence. 
It is the unapproachable purity of his holiness. And in the age to come, we will see, savour, experience that glory. That's God's inherent glory, the glory that he has in himself. God's glory is also the fact that he is the highest, he has the highest position in the universe. He's the CEO of the universe, right? He has that glory. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He has that positional glory. And also God's glory is his reputation and the honour of his name. That's his relational glory. And God's glory will be revealed to us. And I mean, we'll be gobsmacked when we see it, when we experience it. But more than just being revealed to us, it's going to be revealed in us. We are going to share in it. So as believers, we are going to have inherent glory. Our bodies are going to be changed into immortal, incorruptible resurrection bodies that are ethically perfect. We're going to be co-heirs with Christ. We're going to have a positional glory. What does that mean, that we're co-heirs with Christ? Who, who knows? And we will receive the glory of being, uh, the glory and praise of, from God for our work here as Christians. We're going to receive relational glory. That is what we've got to look forward to. But the pathway to future glory is the same as it was for Christ, which is through suffering. We must go the same way as Christ. But the glory to come is so great that the suffering we experience now is like a pregnant mother's birth pains. The pain may be immense, but the joy to come will completely overshadow the pain. When my wife Maya was in labour, uh, for, for a number of reasons, she had to do it without an epidural with our kids. But she's my hero. No epidural. Now, I didn't appreciate how painful labour was for her, but also for me. Um, every time my wife had a contraction, she would dig her arm into my wrist and draw blood. I tried to break her hold, but it was like the Hulk was holding me. Every time the contraction ended, I tried to run away, but she would just grab me again and draw blood. The nurse obviously thought that I was in pain. She said, do you want to suck on the gas? I said, thank you. She said, no, I meant your wife, sir. I said, oh, yeah, okay. And I wasn't prepared for how tiring the whole uh, labour thing is, right? I had to massage my wife's back for eight hours, run, move the car, get some ice for her to suck on. But when the baby came, the joy completely overshadowed the pain that, I had, that my wife had experienced, right? The glory to come is so great that it, will in, that it will completely overshadow the pain of your suffering. And some of you really need to hear that today. Have a look with me in verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Creation groans for the day when believers will share in the glory to come because on that day, creation itself will be renewed. Right now, the created order with all its natural disasters and its bone cancer in children and its parasites in eyes that cause blindness, creation is groaning in pain and frustration at its brokenness. But the brokenness of creation is not the fault of God, as Stephen Fry accuses God, a God that he doesn't even believe in. Creation's brokenness, as we've heard this, more, uh, this evening in our Bible reading, what did it say? Creation's brokenness is because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Adam and Eve gave God the fork, stay out of my life, and God righteously judged them. And as a result, creation was cursed by God, which had devastating consequences. From cancer cells which grow out of control, to tsunamis which flow out of control, to volcanoes which blow out of control, creation is malfunctioning badly, isn't it? And creation is, de is in desperate need of more than just a service and an oil change. Creation needs a complete engine overhaul. But when God subjected creation to frustration, there was hope from the very beginning. Did you pick that up in the Genesis Bible reading? The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God promises that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, which was fulfilled when God got off his throne, was born of a woman and crushed the serpent Satan on the cross. And he will return for final deliverance when the children of God, you and I, are revealed. Now, Christians, we are already children of God, but we do not much appear like God's special children at times, do we, in our weakness and in our suffering. But when we reach the glory to come, our true identity will be revealed to the universe and our, our transformation into Christ-likeness will be brought to its final stage. And so creation longs for that day. But creation is not the only thing groaning. So creation groans for the glory to come, but Christians groan for the glory to come. Have a look with me in verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. There was a national survey that asked a question. If you could, go, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Uh, the number one question people wanted to ask was, why does a good God allow suffering? Uh, there was an interesting statistical quirk 
People who are married were much more likely to want to know why there's so much suffering, especially the husbands. That last bit's not true. Now, different belief systems throughout history have tried to make sense of the suffering in our world and have come up with various explanations. For example, Hinduism explains suffering as karma, as balance or payback. Uh, all actions of the past are balanced out by the events of the present. So bone cancer in a child is because of the bad actions of the family in the past. Buddhism says, well, all suffering is just an illusion. What we need to do is to escape the world into nirvana. Islam says that all events are predetermined by the will of Allah. And we're not to ask why, because the ways of Allah are beyond our small minds. Atheism says, well, the universe is just a cosmic accident, and so randomness means that some people are going to get lucky, some people are going to get hurt, and there's no rhyme or reason for it. But no, God's word tells us that suffering is a result of Adam and Eve's sin. We are born into Adam's realm, which is characterized by disease, disaster, and death. That is the world that we live in. But as we've seen over the last few weeks, we have been transferred out of that realm into the realm of Christ. But there's this overlap of the ages, as we've been learning. There's this overlap of the ages. Although we are God's children, our, our, our ties to the old age have not yet been severed. We're still caught up into this fallen world. And so we, we have to endure all the hardship that comes with our hostile and decaying environment. We're not immune from disease, disaster, death yet as Christians. We experience the blessings of the new age, but in the midst of the weakness of the old. And so we groan. We groan. It's frustrating. And in the midst of our pain and suffering, we might groan to God, God, when have you ever experienced pain like I've experienced? God the Father replies, I know your pain. I know what it's like to lose a child. And God the Son once stood on the rim of the universe looking at the world that needed a saviour. And he said to his father, I will go. And he entered our suffering. We don't worship a God who is immune to suffering, do we? He knows your pain, not just because he's all-knowing, but because he's experienced it firsthand. But suffering is not the final word. One day Christ will return and the old age will be completely destroyed. There will be no more disease, disaster, death. We of all the world views have this hope. None of the others have this hope. But until then, we groan. We groan because we're yearning to be out of this old age and to be with Christ. Well, there's still more groaning going on 
Thirdly, the spirit groans as we wait for the glory to come. Have a look with me in verse 26. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So you and I, if you're a Christian here today, you have been given the spirit, which is the first fruits. You know, in farming, when you see the first fruits of the harvest, that is the guarantee that the rest of the harvest will soon be coming as well, right? And so you and I, we've been given the spirit, which is the first fruits of the age to come. It is the guarantee, it is the deposit, it is the first instalment. And the spirit helps us in our weakness. We've been seeing that over the last few weeks. And today, we particularly see that the Spirit helps us when we pray. Because of our finiteness, our finiteness and our fallibility, we don't have an adequate grasp of what to pray for all the time, do we? You find yourself not knowing what to pray for. My loved one is sick with cancer and they're in immense pain. What do I pray for? Do I pray that they will live on? Of course I want that, but they're in so much pain. Well then, do I pray that they will go and be with the Lord? But then I don't want them to be because I want, I want them to be with me. How do I pray? I don't know. And so what that means is when you and I pray, we need to qualify our prayers almost always with if it's your will, Lord, because we don't know. But when we don't know what to pray for, when we, we pray for things that are not best for us or when we might not be able to think clearly because we're just hurting so much, we don't need to despair because the Spirit of God intercedes for us with wordless groans that are imperceptible to us. The Spirit is doing that for us. It's the prayer of God to God. And it's so deep that it needs no words. And that is happening within you. This makes a line of perfect communication because the Spirit prays in perfect accord with the will of God and the Father answers those prayers because they are in accord with his will. That's what's going on. That is happening as you are living your life. The Spirit is interceding for you. What comfort we get from that. And final point. Subi Church groans for the end of the sermon to come. That's, it is hot in here, so I can understand why you're groaning. I don't know who wrote that. Who put that up there? No. God's purpose for us is to share in the glory of his Son. Have a look with me in verse 28. And we know that in some things God works for the good of those who love him. Is that right? And we know that in a few things God works for the good of those who love him. Is that right? No. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? In all things, God works for your good. Now the question is, what is your good? Is your good that you will be happy all the time? 
Does your good mean that you will always be wealthy and healthy? Well, this is a typically Western perversion of good into an exclusively materialistic interpretation. God has a much higher good in mind for us than just health, wealth. He tells us in the next two verses, have a look in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What is the ultimate good that God has in mind for you? It is that you would be conformed to the image of his Son and that you would be glorified. You would share in his glory. That is his ultimate good for you. See, there's a destination which has been set in motion before the beginning of time. And that is to provide Christ with a family of brothers and sisters who are imprinted with his likeness. A family in which Jesus is firstborn, which doesn't mean born first, but means preeminent. And for Christ's brothers and sisters, you and I, to share in that glory. God's plans are centered around Christ always, and we are caught up in those plans. So of all the ambitions that you may have in life, of all the things you might dedicate your life to, the one that God really cares about is that you are transformed by the Holy Spirit into the likeness of Christ. That's what he really cares about. That you would exhibit love, joy, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, holiness. That's what he wants you to care about. Where is that on your priority list? Where is that on my priority list? Paul describes in these verses what is called God's golden chain of salvation. Thanks, Linda Lee, for this slide. It's great. So, before the beginning of time, this chain has been set in motion. We have been foreknown. So, if you're a believer, God foreknew you, which means he foreloved you. He set his love upon you before the creation of the world. He then predetermined your destiny. He predestined you, chose you to be his child. He then called you, which means he irresistibly wooed you to himself. He decided that you would decide to follow him. And when you did, he justified you. He declared you righteous and you will be glorified. Now, glorified, it was written here in the past tense because although our glorification is going to be in the future, it is as good as done because the defined decision has already been made. All those with whom God begins this process complete it, right? There are no dropouts. This is not high school or uni. There are no dropouts. If you're a believer, he will take you on that path 
and you will be glorified if you remain in him. So what these verses are telling us is that God is our shepherd. He is in your life, each one of your lives, and he's acting behind the scenes without you consciously aware of it. And he's sovereignly organizing all your circumstances so that his plan for you will come about. There's nothing in your life that is not used by God to make sure you get to his final destination for you. He'll work in your weaknesses, in your illnesses, in your relationship breakups, in your loss of job to bring about good in your life. So the bad stuff that you experience, that I experience, are not obstacles to our ultimate good. They are actually the means by which our good is accomplished. I just want to spend the last few moments just thinking about the cross. Imagine it's 2,000 years ago and uh, you are in the crowd and you are watching Christ being crucified. You are in the crowd. You've already seen him being beaten, being stripped naked, shamed, his crown of thorns skewered on his head. You've seen these big six-inch nails, rusty, go through one hand and then the other, through his ankles. He is up on the cross. He is gasping for air. He's slowly asphyxiating to death. And the person next to you in the crowd says, how could God possibly bring any good out of this? And if you were back then, you would have agreed with them. You would have said, how could God possibly bring any good out of a crucifixion? But now, this side of the cross, we now know that the cross was the greatest good that God could ever have done for us. So in your life, whenever you, you don't know the reasons for your suffering, for your cross, you can look at the cross and you can know that God works all things out for your good. Which is what? To be conformed to the likeness of the Son and to share in his glory. And if Stephen Fry was in front of you right now, how would you answer his uh, rant? Well, the question, is God all-loving and is he all-good, is answered at the cross, isn't it? Because we can see that he's all-loving because he himself got off his throne and suffered in order to fix our suffering which we brought on ourselves. And we can see that he's all-powerful because God outmaneuvers, outsmarts and outpowers Satan at the cross. See, the sun turns up and Satan and his demons want to plot to kill him. But through the cross, God sets a trap, doesn't he? As Satan and his demons go out to kill the son, imagine a junior demon that is too junior to go out with the other demons, so he gets left back at headquarters. And when the rest come back after killing Christ, the junior demon says, well, how did it go? Imagine the look on the rest of the demons' faces when they say, hmm, we still can't work out what happened. But we think 
by killing the son, we may have accidentally kick-started the salvation of the world. This is a major case of, dude, you had one job. At the cross, Satan gets double bluffed. So when bad things happen to us, we may fail to see God's purposes in it. But we can trust that he has our ultimate good in mind and he has the power to carry it out. And his ultimate good is that you would be conformed to his son, to the likeness of his son, and you would share in his glory forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word comforts us, that our groaning will soon be over. I pray for those amongst us who are groaning, and I know there are many. I pray you would be with them in their groaning. That their illness, that their suffering that they're going through right now, that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, that you would remind them that the glory to come will overshadow completely their present suffering. And Lord, let us be reminded that you know what it's like to suffer. So we can call on you and we can ask you to help because you know and you've been there. And I pray for each one of us, Lord. Thank you for the, that, for the assurance that you will take us to be with you in glory, that this chain cannot be broken. And I pray for each one of us that we would spend our days doing what you want us to do, which is to be conformed to the likeness of your Son. So I pray that your Spirit would transform us, would shape us. so that we might have the imprint of your precious Son on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.